The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we do thank you that you are the God who controls history. You are the God who is in control of all of the details of our life and that, that we can rest and relax in your absolute sovereignty. Father, we thank you that you have saved us with such a remarkable salvation and you have provided with, to us with that salvation everything we need to face life, to handle problems, and to advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we are engaged in a tremendous battle in our own souls because of the sin nature and because of the outside external pressures of cosmic thinking. Father, now as we continue our study of Judges, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, how they relate to us, get a better handle on the pressures and uh, the, the tensions in our own lives and our own thinking, that we might learn to better renovate our thinking that we might align our thinking consistently with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the second chapter of Judges. Second chapter of Judges, starting in verse 6. Second chapter of Judges. Now, we have seen that in terms of basic organization, the purpose for judges is stated in the final verse, there was no king in the land, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That tells us that the basic problem that caused the deterioration in Israel wasn't the fact that they didn't have the right kind of government. It wasn't the problem of of the human monarchy. It was a problem of the divine theocracy, that Israel rejected the authority of God. That is why the authority of God is the fundamental core issue in our lives. If we are not properly oriented to God and His authority in our lives, then you can rest assured that you will go through personally the same cycles of discipline that Israel goes through as a nation in the book of Judges. The writer of Judges organizes his material in terms of three basic divisions. The first is in the first two chapters and six verses into the third, 1-1 one, one to 3-6. The second division covers the cycle of deliverance that we will begin to uh, study this morning, the cycle of their disobedience, and then discipline from God, and then God provides a deliverer. And in the last four chapters, 17 through 21, we have two appendices, two different just bizarre episodes that reveal just the absolute collapse and perversity of the nation. In the introduction, we learn about the cycles of deliverance. The second section focuses on the breakdown of the leadership of the nation. And then in the last four chapters, we see the spiritual breakdown and reversionism of the people. Last time, when we looked at this, we saw the angel of the Lord come to the people from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, Gilgal was the... uh, a command and control center for the army of Israel under the command of the angel of the Lord. And we studied that term last week. We saw that Malach in the Hebrew translated angel 
uh, means envoy or messenger. Too often a day people have funny ideas of what an angel is. So it's to get a better idea here, this is the envoy or messenger of the Lord. Specifically, it is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of the armies. That's the term in Hebrew, Yahweh, Sabaoth. Uh, that's a word that is used by Martin Luther in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A lot of times people think, well, maybe that's a misprint, maybe it's Sabbath, or an odd way of spelling Sabbath, but it's the Hebrew Sabaoth, which means armies or hosts, and it indicates that, that Jesus is the commander-in-chief, and Gilgal was the command and control center for the armies of Israel under Joshua as they went out to, to uh, conquer the Canaanites in the land. Now, chapter 1, in order to understand the relationship of the first chapter to the second chapter, we have to understand something about the nature of Hebrew narrative. We studied this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, and we saw that that in Western European Latin heritage uh, history, we think in terms of chronology. So if you were to sit down and study American history, you start off in uh, 1492 with Columbus sailing the ocean blue. You all remember that poem from elementary school. And Columbus comes to America and rediscovers it, of course, after the Vikings and numerous other people have been here. But in the providence of God, that's when uh, God is designed to start something new on this particular continent. And then we study the events that happen with the coming of the pilgrims and the Puritans and various other groups down into Virginia. And we proceed chronologically through the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. Well, that's not how Jews wrote poetry. That's not how Jewish thinking went. Jews wrote narrative. The way they wrote narrative, often they would start with an idea and uh, something would happen and then so that you would, the reader would understand the consequences and how it worked itself out in history, the writer will go ahead and tell the whole story and then come back in time and start with another thread and then maybe uh, work that out in history as well so the reader is not left hanging to try to figure out on his own what, what the cause, effect, and consequences might be of particular events. Furthermore, in terms of Hebrew narrative, what a, uh, they often did was they would give you a summary big picture in terms of historical events and then come back and fill in the details afterwards. We see that in the relationship between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-1, we learn about the six days of active creation when God creates... Uh, the entire perfect environment for man. And then the second chapter comes back and looks at the important aspect, the focal point of that creative week, and that was what took place on the sixth day in relation to the creation of man. So you have the overview in chapter 1, and then you come in and you look at a particular detail and expand upon that in the second chapter. Now what happens in Judges 1 and 2, I think that if we were to break it, Although, because of the way the writer writes, I think that he really makes a shift at the beginning of 2.1, so there is a break there. But there's a significant temporal break between verse 5 of chapter 2 and verse 6. If you look back at, Josh, at Judges 1.1, the first thing we read is the sentence, Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of Yahweh. Now then you come to chapter 2, verse 6. And we read, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Well, wait a minute, I thought Joshua was dead. This seems all out of order. Well, what happens in Judges 1, 
I'm Judges chapter 1, is it's the first verse sets the temporal context of when these events take place. It's right after the death of Joshua. The book of Judges is going to cover a period after Joshua has died. We see how during Joshua's time, the armies of Israel conquered the major strongholds, Jericho, Ai, strongholds in the south and then strongholds in the north, and they basically captured uh, the main part of the land and seized control. But there was a mopping up operation that needed to take place, and they needed to send out the armies in terms of tribe by tribe to go in and take full control of each individual allotment. And chapter 1 traces simply the history of that, uh, of that military operation. There, is, there are hints there of the, uh, of the trends that are taking place in terms of the compromise of the people with the thinking of the Canaanites and the pagan population of the land. But it is not until we get to chapter 2 that we see the divine interpretation of those events. Chapter 1 gives us the deterioration. They start off with victory, but even in the midst of Judah's victory against uh, Adonai Bezek in verse 4, they still adopt pagan practices of dealing with the enemy rather than God's mandate, which is total annihilation. There is further compromise uh, with the um, when they fail to take when the uh, tribe of Judah fails to take the lowlands. They attribute it to the fact that the Philistines had chariots, but God can defeat anything. He is not less powerful than iron chariots. The problem is their failure to trust. Then there is the situation with the tribe of Joseph in verse 23 when they take Bethel and their compromise and they enter into a contract or covenant with a, an individual there to protect him. And that we saw because it's a bad translation in 24. It does not end, we will treat you kindly. It ends with the word, we will treat you with chesed, which is covenant loyal love. And that kind of covenant loyal love with the, with the Canaanites was forbidden by God. And then it gets worse. It, we, starting in verse 27, we read, Manasseh did not take possession. Then Ephraim, in verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. In verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. So now they have to live, they have to coexist with the paganism in the land until finally we come down to the episode in Dan in verses 34 and 36 when Dan is defeated. So we see this deterioration and then the angel of the Lord announces the end of holy war, that this will no longer continue and that they are no longer going, supposed to annihilate the Canaanites. They are to defeat them, but as part of divine discipline for their compromise, now they have to coexist with paganism in the land, and this will be a, a problem. God will not drive them out totally from the land, and the people weep. That's, that all hangs together. Now, starting in verse 6, we go back to before Joshua died. So it's a shift in time. We go back to look at events before Joshua died, and the writer is going to give us, under divine inspiration, an, the interpretation of why thing, the things happened the way they did, in chapter 1. What were the real underlying causes? So to begin with, when we read in verse 6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, we need to get the background for this. So that means we need to turn to the 24th chapter of Joshua. Joshua 24, which is Joshua's departing challenge to the nation. Verse 1, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads, 
And for their judges, that doesn't mean he called for them to be beheaded. He called for the chief leaders in the land. called for their, their heads, their judges, their officers, and they presented themselves before God. See, this isn't just let's have a meeting and Congress is going to be called to order, but we're coming before God. This is the function of the theocracy. God is the king of the nation, and so when they gather together in an official function, they are in the presence of God. Now, they gather at Shechem, and this is significant and will become a significant site in the book of Judges, so we need to review a little bit about the importance of Shechem. It's an ancient city. It was established not long after the flood, and we know that it is under the, in the possession of the Canaanites when Abram first enters into the land. It's located in, Ephra, in the tribal area of Ephraim, near the city of where Jesus would come to speak to the woman at the well near Mount Gerizim. Now, let's see if we can pull this up on the map here. And get a look at where it is located. This is the tribal allotment in the center part of the land of Ephraim. It is north of Jerusalem, and it is in the hill country. And somewhere about where this arrow is, somewhere north to the north uh, west of Bethel, is you get into what in the New Testament time is, is called Samaria. And this is where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are located. And it's two mountains, and in between there is a valley. They're very close together. They're not high mountains like the Rocky Mountains. They're more like uh, the mountains that you might find down in the lower areas of the uh, Appalachians. So they're, they're, they're high ridges and in between is a valley, and so the entire nation comes together. So we're looking at about three million people all brought together there to come before the presence of of God. During the time of, uh, we saw that it was, oper- was uh, controlled by Canaanites when Abram came into the land. Later, two generations later, this is the scene of an uh, uh, extremely odd episode with Jacob's daughter Dinah. She uh, has an affair with uh, Shechem, a person named after, this, after that particular city. He's the son of Hamor. And Shechem seduces Dinah, and then her two brothers come in and they uh, uh, kill everyone in the city and wipe them out. So it's got that kind of tragic history, but it's deeply associated with the patriarchs. It's here that when the nation comes together earlier in Joshua, after their initial conquest of the land, that they commit themselves again to submission to the Mosaic law. And what happens is the whole nation has to read the law and they gather half the tribes on Mount Ebal and half the tribes on Mount Gerizim, and they read antiphonally the law, specifically the cursings and the blessings of the law. The cursings are the way God will bless them if they are obedient to Him, and the cursings are the five cycles of discipline that God will bring upon the nation if they are disobedient to the covenant. Now remember, the Mosaic Covenant is based on that model of the ancient world called the suzerainty vassal treaty form. A suzerain was an underlord, uh, usually a king in a country, a small country that had been conquered by a greater nation. And so the greater empire or nation, the greater king would be called the suzerain or the great king, the great lord. And the suzerain would enter into a contract with this underling, the vassal king, 
and would stipulate that because I have done these things for you in the past, I will do these other things for you in the future, and if you're obedient to me, I will continue to uh, protect you and bless you, and that would be spelled out in the contract. But if you're disobedient to you, then I'll send my armies in and burn your cities. So it would be that kind of a contract. But the, one of the key words in a suzerain vassal treaty form is the Hebrew word avad, which means to serve, to serve. And it was the function of the vassal to serve at the whim and the pleasure of the great king. And so that is a key word, and we're going to run into it in our passage. Now, Joshua gathers the people together at Shechem. Now, Shechem will, has also a significance in Judges because it is at the men of Shechem that will come together in, in rebellion and they will uh, crown Abimelech, the, son of, the illegitimate son of Gideon, as the king of Israel. And that lasted for about three years until uh, that whole episode fell apart. So, Shechem has this odd history to it. But it is significant because it is the site. It is a, a, a significant site of the nation coming together to affirm the law on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. It would be somewhat uh, analogous to Freedom Hall in Philadelphia where we have the Liberty Bell where the Constitution was signed. So this, this location has a rich history, has an emotive connotation for the patriotism of the nation. So Joshua gathers all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he has all the leaders there, and he rehearses for them what God has done for the nation. Beginning in verse 2, he rehearses everything, goes back all the way to Abram. Now, there's a reason to this. See, one of the problems we have in our society today is people just don't care too much about history anymore. They don't think that history is very important. And one of the signs of paganism is that history is diminished and history is not considered to be very significant. But from Christianity we know that history is God's, the outworking of God's plan in human history. So only from a biblical framework do you see that history has meaning and significance. That's why pagan cultures, you go to China and Buddhism never produced history. Hinduism never produced history. You go, go to the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia and, Egypt, and Egypt, they never produced history because they didn't have a philosophical framework for understanding the meaning of history. Even when the Greeks came up with history, the Jews had already been writing history for probably a thousand years, and I think that that had an influence on, on the Greeks. But even if that can't be demonstrated, all that the Greeks were doing was writing extended chronicles. This happened, and that happened, and then they did this, and then we did that. And that's not history. History in its full sense is interpreting the significance and meaning of these events, why they happen, and where history is going. So if you don't have a linear view of history, which Christianity provides, that history is going somewhere, it has a purpose and a function, and it will culminate in the kingdom of God, the messianic rule of Jesus Christ in the millennium. If you don't have a linear view of history, then you don't see the significance of history. You don't see that it has purpose. It's just random events repeating themselves over and over again. So the only thing that matters is here and now. The past is basically irrelevant because history just... And usually that's why the Greeks had a cyclical view of history. Hindus have a cyclical view of history. Other civilizations do because it, it just repeats itself over and over again. So why study history? Who cares? And see, if, you're, if you don't pay attention to history, as Hegel said... 
if you if you don't pay what we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history, and that is because we don't pay attention to it. Too often, people in America are like Henry Ford, who said history is bunk, and uh, that's why we keep repeating the same errors and the same problems over and over again. But history is important. History is important to a nation because it helps you understand what is happening nationally and why it is happening, and it is, is important in our spiritual lives. We need to take the time to reflect in terms of our own personal history as to what God is doing in our lives and how we are being transformed by the Word of God and growing towards spiritual maturity. That is our own uh, history. The nation that forgets its history will be impoverished, and the believer that ignores the history of God's grace in his own life is going to be doomed to misery, failure, and complete disorientation to reality. History is the outworking of the plan of God, and it's only when we understand that, both personally, nationally, both in terms of the human race and our individual spiritual life history, that we can see where things are going and how God is working. So Joshua focuses on the historical root and ground of the nation. He says in verse 2, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, that is the Euphrates River, namely Terah, the father of Abram, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And we know that they came out of Ur of the Chaldees, and probably the third dynasty of Ur, maybe earlier. We've gone over the chronological problems there, and there's a tremendous amount of debate today in the, in the literature about that among conservatives, not discounting liberals. They have, don't have a clue about biblical chronology, but among conservatives who take the biblical chronology seriously, there is still a, a lot of debate over that. Nevertheless, we do know that the ancestors of Abram worshipped the sun gods, the moon gods, the pantheon of the um, Chaldeans. Verse 3, God is, this is, he is speaking, Joshua is speaking for God. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. This is a reminder of God's grace, his gracious promise. Abraham did not earn or deserve the land. Abraham did not earn or deserve a seed. God is rehearsing his grace in in Israel's life, it is like rehearsing to you what God did on the cross through Jesus Christ in dying for your sins. He did everything for us. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we don't add anything to it. And we need to come to grips with that. And because that happened in history, that makes a difference in how we are to act today. So he goes on in verse 4, To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave Mount Seir, that's down in Edom, to the southeast of the land. I gave them Mount Seir to... Possess it, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt, where God protected them. Then, verse five. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And he continues to rehearse all that God did in bringing the nation out of Egypt, taking them through the Red Sea, killing the Egyptian army, drowning them in the Red Sea, taking them through the wilderness, protecting them, providing for them. Forty years they were in the wilderness, and their shoes didn't wear out, and their clothes didn't wear out, and every day God provided food for them with manna and His his protection for them. And when they went into battle, God protected them. And then He brought them into the land and they crossed the river Jordan. And God again gave them victory over the inhabitants of the land in, uh, against Jericho and against Ai and against all of the other forces. And then we come down to verse 14. And this is the challenge. 
you ground, you see Christianity is grounded in historical reality. One application of this is that this has been providing basically an apologetic, a defense of who we are and why we're here. Joshua is telling the nation, this is why we are here. This is why you are a nation. God has a purpose for your life. It is comparable to Peter's statement in Second Peter that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We need to know why we're here. And we're here because Christ died on the cross for our sins and He redeemed us as a royal people, a royal family of God, and God has given us a mission. And there is an analogy between the fact that because of what Christ did on the cross, He then gave the disciples and the church the great commission that we are to be involved in witnessing. And in the same way, by analogy, Israel had this redemptive event coming into the land. God gave them the land, but not for them to spend on their own pleasures, just to do whatever they wanted to in self-absorption and self-indulgence, but for them to advance uh, to spiritual maturity and to be a witness to all the nations around them. And so we have the challenge in verse 14. After grounding everything in historical reality, and for us that would be the cross and the, and the resurrection, Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him. That's our word avad. And that is crucial to understand our role. This is the same word that we find all the way back in Genesis chapter uh, 1 when God creates man in, in uh, His image. And then we find in Genesis chapter 2 that what was man to do in the garden? He was to guard it and he was to work it. He was to serve God. And there's that word again, avad, that goes back to man's basic purpose that we are here to serve God. So because man had failed at the Tower of Babel, man failed before the flood, God called out a special nation to, instead of working through mankind as a whole, He's going to work through Israel. This is their specific task to serve Him in this particular role as a vassal to God as the great King. So fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Avad again the Lord. The emphasis obviously is on serving the Lord and not the gods of the pagans, not the gods of the Mesopotamians your fathers served, not that pantheon, not the, um, not the paganism there. And then in verse 15 he says, And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Now, he's making a point. He he has rehearsed everything for them that God has done, and now it's time to make a decision. Now, I want to warn you, he's not calling for a one-shot revivalistic decision. Let's all come walk the aisle, dedicate our lives to Jesus, put it all on the altar, and yield, brother, yield. That's not what he's doing. He is forcing them to look at everything that God did and come to a decision. But that decision is not a determinative decision. Because you see, the Christian life is not based on a one-shot decision. It's not based on some kind of emotional revival situation where you say, okay, finally, I've screwed up my life, I'm miserable, I need to serve the Lord, and I'm going to do it. And once you make that decision, everything's easy. No, because you'll probably go back on that decision a thousand times over the course of your life, maybe over the course of the next week. Christianity is made up of a series of decisions. Moment after moment after moment, we have to make that decision whether we are going to serve God 
serve the Lord or whether we are going to serve some other pagan system of thought, whether it involves an overt external religious system or whether it involves just an internal subjective idolatry where we're worshiping self or the things that we want for self. So Joshua now challenges the people as to what their priority is. He's given them this history lesson. And he says, in light of all this history, you have basically three choices. Option number one is you can be faithful to the Lord. You can serve the Lord, and this is your responsibility because God has entered into a covenant with you. Or you can choose to go back to the Mesopotamian religions of your ancestors prior to Abram. Or third, you can adopt the Canaanite religions, the idolatry of the Amorites who are in whose land you are living. And then Joshua makes his famous statement, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the issue here is a volitional decision. God is not going to override your volition. The issue is, who's your priority? Is your priority going to be you and what you want in your self-absorbed agenda? Or is your priority going to be what God defines as the priority in Scripture? And that was the, that was the call to the nation Israel. They had to decide whether they were going to pursue their own plans and procedures and their own agenda for life, or were they going to put their focus on what God defined that purpose to be in the Mosaic Law. The purpose for the nation in the Mosaic Law was ultimately to provide a witness for Him, a witness both to mankind and in the angelic conflict, to be a nation that would... Uh, be after God's heart, a nation that when people came, they would hear the gospel, they would hear the truth, they would see a society, a true counterculture movement based on divine viewpoint, they would see freedom in action, and then they would go back to their respective cultures, and through that means, Israel would have an impact on the entire world. Verse 16. People answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Who, us? No, no, no. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to follow the Lord. Why should we depart from the Lord? Remember, we know what He did. Verse 17, For the Lord our God is He who brought us up and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples to whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land, We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Now, they meant well. They meant well. But the issue is not simple sincerity, not in the sense that they they meant it at the time and they had good intentions. Truth is the issue. Truth and alignment with God's policies is outlined in the Scriptures. See, When Moses addresses the nation in this, he makes the whole issue spiritual. It's not your politics. It's not even whether you're Republican, Democrat, liberal, whether you're a monarchist, whether you're a Republican in the classic government concept, whether you're a communist, a socialist. That's not the issue. The issue isn't whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. The issue isn't uh, whether you're pro-capital punishment or anti-capital punishment. The issue is deeper than that. See, all of those are just secondary symptoms of basic problems. The core issue is spiritual. They have to decide what's your religious framework going to be because everything in life flows out of a religious framework. A culture, whether it's the culture of the Tutus in Africa, whether it's the culture 
of uh, Germanic tribes and Teutonic tribes in the early Middle Ages in, in Europe, whether it's the culture of the Jews in Palestine, every culture, whether it's a Hispanic culture, whether it's a black culture in America, an Asian culture, every culture is a reflection of the core religious values because what happens in any culture, you make choices based on a value system. That value system is determined by what you think is right or wrong and what you think the purpose of life is and the ultimate reality is and how you are to relate to that ultimate reality. So depending on your concept of God and how God relates to man, whether or not there is a God, whether God has spoken to man, whether there are absolutes or relatives, that changes everything. That's why Joshua is focusing their attention on the spiritual issues and that is why throughout this entire book of Judges, we see that what destroys the nation isn't that the nation is a corporate entity rejects God, but it is a a corporate rejection of God because the individuals rejected God. As goes the individual, so goes the nation. And the most important thing in this nation is for the individuals to have their focus on God and have doctrine as the number one priority in terms of spiritual growth. And then the nation is blessed by association. That's one of the reasons why Satan continually is attacking believers is because he attacks the nation through believers by getting us distracted from the grace of God. This is the whole point in, in uh, Joshua's challenge here is he is reminding the nation of grace and he is saying if you're not grace-oriented, if you're not oriented to the grace of God, then no matter what else happens, you're going to be a failure as a nation, the most important thing is to put God at the center of everything. Now, we can't make simply a one-shot decision for the Lord and make, make a decision walking the aisle and suddenly everything else is going to be fine, and that's how they handled it. They were really were re- answering the question in terms of some kind of one-shot decision. Okay, we'll serve the Lord. And that's like so many Christians who just want to make the decision and they have this superficial Christianity. They think it's just a one-shot thing rather than a moment-by-moment commitment to life. It's a commitment. Doctrine has to be our entire life. It is our purpose. It is our reason for being here. Because only by being committed to doctrine are we going to see our minds transformed. And Joshua sees the problem very clearly. And we know this from his response in verse 19. Look down at verse 19, we see that Joshua is not at all fooled by the apparent sincerity of the people. Verse 19, Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord. See, they've just, in all sincerity, they say, Oh, Joshua, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do what God wants us to do. That's what we want. And that's like so many people, they just, they, they even deceive themselves into thinking that God's a priority in their life when He's not. And Joshua cuts right through and he says, You're not going to be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God, He is a jealous God, and He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. So that is the promise of divine discipline. The people, of course, say, No, but we will serve the Lord. What we see here is the fundamental issue in Israel is their arrogance. And that's the fundamental issue in the life of every single believer. Arrogance is self-absorption. 
Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. Self-indulgence leads to self-justification, and self-justification leads to self-deception. And what we see here is that the nation is arrogant, and they are involved in self-deception. They have deceived themselves and is saying, oh, I really want to serve the Lord. He's really a priority. We go through all of the external motions, so therefore it must be right. And what Joshua sees is, no, you just are going through the motions. You're going to Bible class. You're taking notes. You've learned the vocabulary, and you talk the talk, but you're not committed in your soul to following the Lord. And Joshua saw that and knew what the consequences would be. So the people are in self-deception because they are in arrogance, and that's the underlying problem. Now that's the background to Judges chapter 2, so let's flip over a couple of pages to our passage. We need to fit this into the overall structure of the book, and this is the paganization of the nation Israel. By paganization, I mean that that there are basically two ways to look at life. There's God's way, and there is what what the Bible calls cosmic thinking or worldly thinking. Sometimes I call it human viewpoint, but a more technical term is pagan thought. Pagan thought is not a pejorative term. It refers to all thinking that is uh, apart from the Word of God. Now, sometimes it's going to look like it it fits with the Word of God and they go along together because, see, see, the devil knows what works. And just because a system is 95% right doesn't mean that we ought to follow it. I mean, I would not, there are a lot of good moral things in, in the Book of Mormon. There's probably a lot of good things in the Book of Koran. But uh, I do not want anybody reading the Koran or the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon just because they might be 90% right or 95 I don't think they are, but just for sake of argument, if they had that much truth in them, still, it's the error that is in there, that 5%, 2%, 4% error that is wrong, that destroys and distorts the entire system. So, when a nation rejects God, and God is no longer the authority and the source of truth in that nation, then they look to themselves, they look to something inside the system to, um, as the source of authority, and that's what happens in Israel. They do what is right in their own eyes. They set themselves up as the final authority as to what is right and what is wrong. It, and they reject the absolutes of Scripture. So that's the overall uh, structure of these first, uh, this first, these first two chapters is the background to the paganization of, of the nation. Now, when we come down to chapter 2, verse 6, the writer of Judges is going to give us the interpretation of these events in the first six chapters. So it goes back to what, I mean, the, in the first chapter, so it goes back to the events before the death of Joshua and then helps us understand what the underlying significance is. When Joshua had dismissed the people, and that's really a poor translation. When Joshua had dismissed the people, what we have here is the Hebrew word shalah. Looks like this in the Hebrew, shalah, and here we have a... H-A is a definite article, S-H... A-L-L-A-H. It's the P-L imperfect plus the Vav consecutive, which is the standard narrative style. So we see that, that the, the writer here is just continuing th- things. When Joshua had dismissed the people. 
And this word shalach in the PL has the idea of sending someone on a mission or uh, commissioning them to a particular task. So it's not just, okay, go home. It is you're being sent on a mission. This is no different from the fact that that Christ has sent the church on a mission in the world, and that is to be a witness for Him. We are to be a witness to man by communicating the gospel to those around us, and we are to be a witness to the angels through our positive volition and our advance to spiritual maturity. So when jo- it's not shouldn't be translated when Joshua had dismissed the people, but when Joshua commissioned the people, he sent them on a mission. They have a task. Then the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. So they've already been engaged in the major battles of Jericho AI, battles in the south, battles in the north, and now they're going out tribe by tribe to seize and control the allotment given to each one of them. This is what precedes Joshua 2, uh, I mean Joshua 1.1. Now let's skip verse 7 for a moment. We'll come back to it and go down to verse 8. Then Joshua the son of Nun... Some have said this means Joshua is the only person in the Bible who had no parents. He was the son of none. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake this early in the morning. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. This is the noun of Avad. I want you to notice the emphasis. He fulfills his covenant role under the Mosaic law to serve the Lord. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash, which is located somewhere in this area, just sort of southwest of Shiloh. So it's not too far from the scene of uh, Mount uh, of Shechem, and the scene there at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. This is where Joshua is buried. So we see the end of Joshua and his time. Now, Joshua and his generation saw firsthand the work of God in their lives. They witnessed God bringing them into the land, the, the parting of the waters at the River Jordan as the entire nation came across. They were witnesses of God giving them the victory at Jericho when they marched around the city and then the walls collapsed. They are a witness to God giving them the victory over Ai, and then they burn the city. They are witnesses to all of the miraculous acts of God throughout all of this period. So they have empirical evidence that God was working in their lives. But, see, they didn't have to have faith as strong as others because they could say, I don't need to just have faith, but... I have actually seen the things that God has done in history. I know that God exists. I know He's alive. And so there's no problem. I have an empirical... But by the time of their death, another issue arose. Verse 10. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for Israel. So, what happens is the next generation arises and they have failed in the process of transmitting the realities of the empirical evidence to that generation. The priesthood had failed, 
according to their principles in Leviticus, they were to teach the people the Word of God and what God had done, and they failed. According to the principles in Deuteronomy 6 and following, the parents were to drill the kids on the Mosaic Law, and they were to teach their children. See, it's primarily the parents' responsibility to teach doctrine to the kids. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not the Sunday school's responsibility. It is the parents' responsibility to teach doctrine to the kids. And ultimately, it is the father's responsibility. In Ephesians chapter 6, it is the father who is held accountable. He is the one who is given the specific command to raise up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's not addressed to the mom. That's addressed to the dad. And it's his responsibility, and it's not his responsibility to delegate it to the mother. He needs to be involved in the process. I don't think there's anything more significant in the life of a child than when the father is intimately involved in teaching them the Word. Because what happens otherwise, if it's just the mom, then you create the same problem we're going to see in Judges, and that is a feminization of Christianity. And I have heard many people and seen... I, have, I had a kid say one time, Oh, I don't know why I come to church. My dad never comes to church. And it's only my mom, and, and he says Christianity is just for women. And in the first church I pastored, we had, there was a lot of that attitude. They, the church had not had a background in doctrine. And it was amazing, I would say, of almost half the families that came, the men did not come and were not involved at all in the church. And it, ma- it made a shift in the families to a, to a spiritual matriarchy. And so guess what we had problems with in that church, folks? We had problems with a lot of women who thought they ran the church. And, uh, well, that's another story, but that's always what happens when men abdicate their role as the spiritual head of the home and the leader of the home and the one who's responsible to teach doctrine in the home is what is communicated to the children is that it's not important for men to know doctrine. That's just something for, for women. And that is destructive and will destroy a nation when that works itself out. So the younger generation comes along and they haven't seen the empirical evidences because the parents failed in their job to transmit the information about God's grace to the next generation. You see, you can't keep faith going without communicating the empirical evidences of how God has worked in history. See, what happens today, and we see this result today, you have all kinds of religious activities that go on. People want to speak in tongues and they want to heal people and they want to laugh in the Spirit and they want to run in the Spirit and they want to go through all kinds of things. They go down to the Christian bookstore which has, you know, 99% of their titles aren't worth reading because they're all based on psychobabble or personal experience or they offer the secret to the Christian life or the key to godliness or or something like that as if it's some simple one-shot decision and everything's based on experience personal experience, not the empirical acts of God in history, and faith then is subjective and not objective. But in Christianity, our faith is objective. It's based on the fact that God has entered into human history and He has worked through space-time events, and our faith is based on facts. Our faith is not based on some subjective feeling or psychological state. That is why so many unbelievers, when you talk about being born again or you talk about uh, Christianity and getting saved, they interpret it as just some sort of psychological event or state in a person's life. That's because most Christians that they see, that's all they have. They don't understand any facts about the nature of Christianity. Faith is based on 
a fact. Saving faith is based on the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross and there He was crucified and died on the cross for our sins as our substitute. That He died, that He was buried, and that He rose from the grave on the third day. It is not based on some subjective impression or having some sort of experience when coming to church. Faith also is not faith in itself. It's not sitting around and saying, well, I believe, I believe, I believe, and trying to work yourself up into some sort of state where you have faith, and that's nothing more than self-hypnosis. Unfortunately, that's what passes for Christianity in about 98% of the churches out there. Nobody has any doctrine. Nobody has any content. And they don't want to come to church for content. They don't want to come and learn anything. They want to come and be made to feel better. I remember in my first church, I had one wonderful little old lady come up to me and say, Well, Pastor, you know, one reason people have problems with you is because, because we want to come to church and feel good, and, and we don't feel good. And I said, Well, you know, we'd rather go listen to Robert Schuller on television. I did not throw up in her face. That was the grace of God. See, people would rather have that kind of bilious nonsense and just go away feeling good than to really be taught the Word and learn the Word and then go through the mental effort of having to evaluate their own lives, why they think the way they do, why they relate to people the way they do, why they act the way they do, taking a hard look at their own sin nature in the mirror of the Word of God to see what their trends are. I mean, that's a real lesson sometimes to sit down and to analyze what your basic lust patterns are. Are you basically driven by approbation lust? Are you driven by power lust, sex lust? What are your basic lust patterns and how do they manifest themselves in terms of your own personal trends? And then if you're married, you can turn around and do that with your husband or wife because one of the problems that you have, we have problems in marriage is because we have conflicts with our sin nature. When the spouse gets out of fellowship and starts operating on their particular lust pattern, following out their particular trend, then things can get pretty nasty. That's why we have rebound, and that's why we have doctrine, and that's why it's only on the basis of doctrine that a couple can achieve any real level of happiness and a real level of stability and peace in a marriage is because they're operating on doctrine and the character of Christ is being formed in them under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it is only on the basis of content, not on the basis of feeling, that we can go anywhere. Now Joshua challenged the people on the basis of what God had done for them in history, and that is to remind them of God's grace. A nation and an individual is always going to be on the slippery slope to disaster once they start taking God's grace for granted and start treating His grace lightly, rather than realizing that every day we live is due to the favor of God. When God no longer plays a significant role in your decision-making process or in your problem-solving approach, then you are on the road to personal disaster. Because what happens is you lose any sense of responsibility to God for serving the Lord and any obligation to serve the Lord. And the root cause for all of this is arrogance. 
arrogance. How many times in the Scripture does it talk about Israel being an arrogant people, a stiff-necked and rebellious people? That's repeated so many times over Scripture, it's become almost proverbial that Jews are a stiff-necked and rebellious people because they are operating on arrogance, going from self-absorption, where you're just so concerned with what you want out of life and your agenda for life and what's going to make you happy and having everything around you just the way you want to. Now, think about that in terms of self-absorption now in terms of the sin nature. Here's the sin nature. We have two areas of operation in the sin nature, what we call the area of strength, which is where you easily avoid sin and where you operate on doing good deeds, good things, and doing things that are basically right, and that's producing human good. Then we have the area of weakness, which is where we most easily succumb to temptation. Now, every one of us ought to have the objectivity under doctrine to know at least where we easily succumb to temptation and where we produce sins. And we produce personal sins in three categories. Mental attitude sins such as worry, fear, anxiety, bitterness, hatred, resentment. We have sins of the tongue where we can't wait to talk about something and spread it around and talk to other people, maybe run somebody down and some people, that's how they handle problems is they just have to go talk to everybody and they run over to this person and say, I've got a problem and I want you to help me. And so they, they want to major on getting some sympathy for somebody. They don't really want to hear any advice. They just want to you know, talk and hear their, hear their tongue go about their problems. And as soon as they get through with that person, then they go to somebody else. And they're basically sucking something from every person. And I've been around those kind of people. Second church I went to, was founded all the wrong reasons. I'm so glad to be here. Y'all are such a great group of people. Everybody here really wants to go somewhere and learn doctrine. That church was founded by a psychotherapist and, and, and three people who were his patients. And I had never seen a crowd that was more self-absorbed, self-indulgent, and there were about five women in that church that had been patients of this guy. Now, this guy was about as antinomian as they come. And about 30 seconds after I got in the pulpit, he left the church. But he left the church with all of his self-absorbed, whiny, dependent patients. And it took about two years before they all finally got the message and they left the church and that we weren't going to sit around and hold their hand, let them cry on our shoulders and get let them get away with having pity parties anymore. It took me a while to get the leadership straightened out that that wasn't the purpose of the church. So I, I think my first ten years as a pastor at the Lord had me out there as sort of a hired gun straightening some things out. But that's what happens. You get people who they major in sins of the tongue and all they want to do is wag about all their problems and have pity parties and get other people to give them sympathy and help them. And you get a couple of people like that in a congregation. It is, it is terrible because everybody before long is just so sick and tired of those individuals, but they feel guilty because we all get the idea that as Christians we're supposed to help people. Well, that's what these people want. That's what they major in is getting help all the time, and they never go anywhere or do anything with it. So we major in mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. But at the very core of our sin nature, we have our lust patterns. Our lust patterns. Now, think about this. You're operating, your particular lust pattern is power lust. Now, if you have 
uh, approbation lust, then you probably don't have a lot of pro- difficulty with authority. Because what you want is approval. So, so you're going to be, you're going to always be trying to please mom and dad. You're always going to ple- try to please your boss because that's what you want is that recognition and that approval. So if you tend to operate on approbation lust, then the way that's going to parlay itself out into relationships is you, you might even put yourself in a position where people really take advantage of you a lot when they shouldn't, and you let them when you shouldn't, simply because you're trying to get everybody else's approval. But if you're operating on power lust, then what you're trying to do is to, do, to control everyone around you and control your agenda. And somebody who operates on power lust, if that's your tendency then you are going to have a major problem in any relationship. You're going to have, if you're a woman and your tendency is towards power lust, then, then your husband better be very strong-willed and be very gentle in the process, sort of like taming a, a, a good, strong uh, horse, a stallion, and have that bit in the mouth. Sometimes you want to use a hackamore so it won't tear the mouth up too much if that horse is really a, a very strong-willed and, and wild if you put a bit inside the mouth and they'll just tear their mouth up so you have to train them a certain way but what happens is uh, you get somebody operating on on power lust and you combine that with arrogance and self-absorption then you better get out of that person's way because they have their agenda and no matter what you say what you do they're going to go straight for it and they're going to be once they get down into self-deception they're going to talk about power who? Control who? Not me. See, I'm always amazed. You just slap somebody in the face with the truth of God's Word and uh, they don't even see it. Because what happens when you get into arrogance, you go from self-absorption down through self-indulgence and they've indulged themselves for so long they don't even realize it anymore and self-justification has distorted the truth to where they now believe the lie and now they get down into self-deception and they can't even see themselves objectively in the Word of God. And this is the background of what has happened in the nation Israel or what happens throughout this period is it is a picture of a nation on arrogance. A nation on arrogance. So they have lost that because they have no understanding of how God works in history and how God works in their own lives And so rather than taking the time to evaluate themselves and what God is doing in their lives and in history, they are disoriented from reality. And what happens is what is given in verse 7. Go back to verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. See, the people of Joshua's generation who had observed the empirical realities of God continued to obey the Lord. And all the the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all of his great, the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now we have a chart here to show these trends. You have three eras. The first era is Joshua and the conquest. The spiritual trend there was that they had the great work of Yahweh, according to Deuteronomy 4, 32 through 40, where they saw God bringing about a tremendous victory in the nation. All of the conquest of the land. That's the trend. They are obedient to the Lord. And in response, they served Yahweh. Then we have the elders after Joshua, according to verse 7. 
And the spiritual trend there is that they had a memory of Yahweh's work. They were on the cusp of it and they saw bits and pieces and they had a memory of Yahweh's work and they served Yahweh. But in the following generation, when all of the surviving witnesses had died and gone to be with the Lord, the people did not know the great work of the Lord. There's no empirical evidence. And what's the response? They did not serve Yahweh. They did exactly what Joshua had warned them would take place back in Joshua 24. They would not serve Yahweh and God would then have to discipline the nation. That brings us down to verse 11 and the nature of Israel's apostasy and we'll see in it the nature of reversionism and paganism. But I see that we're just about out of time so we will wait until next time to get into the cycle of reversionism. And let me tell you, just a little hint of forewarning, the cycle that takes place in Israel takes place personally in every single believer that goes negative to doctrine. And one of the things, well, let's just get a little bit of a foresight here, a taste of what's to come. Verse 11, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the, of the Lord, and they served the Baal. So they get involved in the religious system of the Canaanites around them, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed after other gods from among the gods of the peoples. Look down to verse 13. So they forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the result, divine discipline in verse 14. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And then, verse 15, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Pay attention. There's something important left out of verse 15. Whenever, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken, as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Life is miserable for them. Now, what do they do? Do they repent? Do they turn back to the Lord? Do they confess their sins? That's left out. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them. See, this is grace. This is what happens in our lives. We screw up and we go through some negative consequences and we go through some divine discipline and then things kind of even out and we think, oh, well, that really wasn't too bad. I guess I guess I've survived and, uh, and maybe we confessed our sins and we showed up at church once or twice, but we haven't really dealt with anything. We're not advancing spiritual maturity. We're not really applying doctrine. And we think that because things leveled out, that everything's okay spiritually. Wrong. That's just a sign of the grace of God. He doesn't dump all the discipline on us all at once. It comes in cycles. First, He disciplines us. Then He gives us a reprieve to give us that opportunity to come back to Him. Then He disciplines us. And one thing we see over and over again, the nation cries out to God, but they don't solve the underlying spiritual problem of compromise with pagan thought. And so God has to discipline them again. That's why we go through this cycle all the way through Judges. Time and time again, the nation is going to disobey God God's going to discipline them. They cry out. Of course we always cry. God, take it away. So God provides a deliverer. It's a tremendous testimony to the grace of God, but it is a tremendous example of how miserable our lives can be under divine discipline because we are not making doctrine the number one priority in our lives, advancing to spiritual maturity, and challenging all of the pagan thought in our own lives. 
We'll come back and look at that cycle in detail next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word that we have before us and the tremendous challenge of this example because in Israel we see ourselves that too often we fail to aggressively challenge the human viewpoint and pagan thought in our own thinking. We become complacent towards Your grace and we relax in our own spiritual advance and spiritual growth and we end up just going through the overt motions rather than having an an internal devotion to you where we are challenged on a day but we challenge ourselves on a day-to-day basis to advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we're studying. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is uncertain of their salvation, unsure of where they will spend eternity, that they would be challenged by your grace, that you are a just God, a God who must condemn sin, but you are a God of grace who has also provided a perfect solution and that is in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. That you have done everything we need in your grace. That all we have to do is accept it. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, so all that is necessary is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning, that we might not forget them, that we might not be doomed to repeat these errors in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.